This morning's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love." If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, our vision is to see our communities flourish through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this month we're going to be exploring how we think that's going to happen. When you look at your worship guide at the very top, it has these, this sentence where it puts our mission and our vision together. It says, we exist to make whole life disciples for their callings in order to see our communities flourish through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you read that, in a sense, it's an attempt to answer the question, how is it that we think God might use us to bring about this vision? How is it that God might use us to bring about flourishing in our communities, which that's everywhere we live, learn, work, and play? And in a sense, we give you an answer right there. But yet, over and over, we will need to explore what this means. Because some of you may have caught it, there is actually a big assumption here. And the assumption is that flourishing disciples, when sent into the world, that we are God's instruments for bringing about flourishing, for bringing about his kingdom. That's a big assumption. So let me just put it out there. Our assumption is that as we make whole life disciples, that you will become instruments, and that is God's design. But even more than that, there's a biblical expectation attached to this assumption. And the biblical expectation we just heard in John 15, very poignantly, And and that is this, the expectation of Jesus for his disciples is that we would bear much fruit. We see it in verse eight in our reading. If you keep reading past 11, which this is verses one through 11 for you there. In verse 16, Jesus says this, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So even if you just think about reading through the gospels, Jesus is the one who walked up to the disciples and said, follow me. So in that sense, at least he chose them. And now he's telling them, he's reminding them, hey, do you want to know why I chose you? Do you want to know why I told you to follow me? And he says this, that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide or remain. In verse eight, in our passage today, he says this, by this, my father is glorified. And by the way, Jesus is all about his father's glory. I read a sermon from Augustine on John 15 this week. 
And I love the way Augustine said it. Augustine said, what you can read when Jesus says, I glorify my father, is you can read, my vision is to make my father shine brightly in the world. And for us to glorify God is to reflect his brightness to the world. And so Jesus says here, by this, my father is made bright, you could say, in the world, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So Jesus expects that we, his disciples, will bear much fruit. And that means one thing, that Jesus is engaged in a single goal for you. And that is that you would be fruitful in all of your life. And he's putting his energy, he came, he incarnated, he lived a perfect life. He died the death on our behalf and he rose and ascended to the father and is praying for us so that we would bear much fruit. A flourishing life is a fruitful life. So when we say we want to see our communities flourish through the gospel of Jesus Christ, we want to see the fruit of the kingdom of God taking hold in every place where God sends us. So that raises the question, what do we mean by fruit? Right? Is, is it evangelism? Well, yeah, it's that. But what else is it? Is it character? Well, yeah, it's that. But what else is it? Very succinctly, the most succinct definition that I found this week is in the ESV study Bible, what many of you have. You, can, you could have done this yourself, right? This is the way it defines fruit. Fruit is an image for good results. So I'll keep going. Fruit is an image for good results coming from the life of a believer that benefit the lives of others and advance the work of God. Anything you do in your life by the Holy Spirit that is for the good of others and advances God's kingdom, that is fruit. So it's internal, it's external, it's all of your life. Now, when you learn Greek in seminary, the first place you go to read is John. And the reason you go to John's letters is because they're very, it's very simple. The, the vocab is simple. The sentences are short. But it's so interesting to me because you may be able to translate it, but to know the depth of what John is saying takes a lifetime. So there's no way we can get into all of what John is saying, even in these short 11 verses. It is a gold mine. So go back, reflect on what John is saying. But what I want to do at least right now on this idea of fruit is there are six results that John gives us in this passage. So it is more than these, but in the immediate context, John is giving us six results, six fruit of abiding in Christ. And here they are. The first one is effectual prayer. Look at verse Seven. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, of course, this isn't like a genie rubbing uh, exercise, right? You don't just rub the lamp, the genie comes out and gives you what you want. If you start at the beginning, he's talking about a transformation of a person that abides in him. So when you ask something out of abiding in him, you'll be the type of person that only asks for something that he would give you. You see that? So what happens is when you abide in him, you will be increasingly transformed. And so your prayers will become more effective. Why? Because you'll be praying 
more along the heart of God in your circumstances. The second thing here is you will glorify the Father. That's what he says in the beginning of verse 8. My Father is glorified or made bright. So as you and I bear fruit, Jesus says that we will make the Father look great. The third thing is we will authenticate ourselves as genuine disciples. That's the second half of verse 8. And so you and I will increasingly be known as people who follow Jesus. There will be less and less possibility to mistake why you and I make the decisions we make, why we say the things we say, why we push in and lean into the types of conversations we lean into at work, right? When everyone else sort of skirts the issue, who's this guy, who's this gal who keeps coming in and saying, listen, I disagree with you, but we can still stay close. Who does that? Who, who has that secure of a base? Oh, that, that person follows Jesus. That person knows they're loved. That person is secure. So that can happen. The fourth thing is a continued confidence in Jesus's love. As you and I bear the type of fruit that we're going to talk about in this sermon, we will increasingly see and experience Jesus's love for us. See, so often you and I just infer that he loves us. We think we've made too many mistakes for him to actually love us. We think we need to pay a certain amount of penance to get close enough for him to love us again. And now he just puts up with us. But in fact, a fruit immediately in this context that Jesus is saying is that we will have continued confidence in Jesus' love for us. That's verse nine. The fifth thing is obedience to Jesus' commandments. You and I will grow in obedience and it will not be hard. Do you think it was hard for Jesus to obey the Father? Sometimes but not in the way that we tend to think. We tend to think obedience is something where forever we will have to look at something and want it so badly. It's like the dessert when you're on a diet, right? It's so painful. And you think the rest of your life is gonna be that every time you see this, you're just going to have to to take everything in you and find enough self-discipline to not eat it. Well, that's not fruitfulness, not the way the Bible talks about it, but when your character changes internally, you won't even see the dessert as appetizing. You see, that's the type of thing that Jesus is going to do in you when you abide in him. Christianity is not a willpower religion. And if any of us at New City think that we can see flourishing happen in the city by us starting by working harder, we will fail and we will not glorify the Father and we will not change. We'll be really good hypocrites. And then the last thing here, the sixth thing, is fullness of joy. As you and I abide, we will experience not only more of God's love for us, but more of God's joy in him. We will grow in joyfulness. And as you read the New Testament, this isn't connected necessarily to your circumstances. It comes from a different place. It comes from the life of the vine. And of course, the character transformation of the fruit of the Spirit, right? From the book of Galatians, Paul's letter, here are the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, when I say these things, when I say the six things that Jesus says, when I read Paul's words, and I could read in Isaiah, I could read in the prophets, where mercy and justice 
are fruit of the Spirit. We will talk about that a different week this month, but it's all there. When we read these things, we realize, at least I realize, how different my expectations are for my own life than Jesus's expectations. A lot of us are just hoping to get over a couple of bad habits, right? You think, if I could just get over this, if I could be less greedy, if I could love more, and it's just a couple of things, but yet most of your life, you have things that are making everyone unhappy. They're making you unhappy. They're making your neighbor unhappy. They're making your roommate unhappy, your spouse unhappy, your children unhappy. And yet you're just going to leave them there. You're just going to leave them there because Jesus is already doing, he's already doing enough, right? And you're grieving the heart of God and you're leaving those things undisturbed because you're pessimistic about your ability to change. You're pessimistic about how much you actually can change, right? We forget that Jesus is focused on one thing and that is your holiness and your happiness. You will not be happy, ultimately, the Bible says, until you are growing in holiness. And so Jesus's power is committed to that. The problem is, is we don't live as though that's true. We live as though we're sort of managing certain behaviors. That's the way we tend to live. And that's why you're not growing. And I'll get more into that in a second. But when we take seriously that Jesus is after our transformation and he wants us, even you and you and you and me to bear much fruit, then what will happen is we'll give up on our small ambitions for our life. We'll give up on our small expectations of how much our character can change. We'll give up on our small expectations of how God can restore relationships in your life. Marriages, relationships with your parents, your neighbors, long lost friends, family members. Employers, the list goes on and on. We'll give up on this smallness and we'll embrace what Jesus is saying here. And that is he wants us to bear much fruit. And so we, to talk about seeing our communities flourish, we have to first talk about what is a flourishing disciple, right? So the question is, how do we become more fruitful? If flourishing is fruitfulness, according to Jesus, how do we become more fruitful? And the answer first is clearly by drawing life from the vine. So in verses one through four, which we'll get to in a second, uh, where we find ourselves is in the farewell discourse in the gospel of John. The farewell discourse starts in the middle of chapter 13, goes through the middle of chapter 16. And just to remind you what's been happening, verse 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. They're in the upper room about to celebrate the the last supper, as we call it now. So he washes the disciples' feet and he tells them they're clean. And we'll get to that in a second. But what he means is my word that I've spoken to you has taken root in your heart. But then he says what? But not all of you. One of you will will walk away. And of course, John leans into Jesus. Peter, I never, I wonder what the look of Peter was like. Because if you read John, what happens is it says, Peter signaled to John, hey, ask him who it is. So what did that signal look like? I don't know. But Peter signals to John like, hey, right, ask him, ask him. So John leans in, asks him, and you find out it's Judas. And right after that, Judas leaves And so when you read in John 15 about branches being cut off, in the immediate context, it's people like Judas. Okay? So that just happened. But then after that, Jesus is comforting them in chapter 14 because why? He's about to leave. And where he goes, they cannot come yet. And that's the context of him saying, because Philip says, 
where are you going? And then Peter says, why can't we go with you? And then Philip says again, show us the father. And Jesus says, you've seen me, you've seen the father. Why? And here's the bumper sticker verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it's in the context of the conversation where Jesus is comforting them because he's about to leave. And then in verse 15, he makes a transition to the second half of the farewell discourse. And he talks about a very, very well-known image of the vine and the branches. This, isn't, this is not new to Jesus, okay? In the Old Testament, Israel was to be the fruitful vine. The problem was is they weren't fruitful because they thought all of God's blessing was just for them. And they got fat and happy and inward looking and circled the wagons, which will always lead to idolatry. Always. Over and over and over it leads to idolatry. So they're supposed to be the great vine that produces for the gardener, but not for themselves, for the world. Problem is they don't do it. So that's why Jesus steps in and says, I am the true vine. Not Israel, no more. I am the true Israel. I am the true vine. This image was so normal to them of fruitfulness and the vine that during the Jewish war of AD 66 and 70, there was a time when the Jews put out their own currency. So every time you're going to put out a coin, what do you have to think? What inscription is going to go on it? Well, they can't break the commandment and try to make an image of God like Caesar was on it. So what did they put on there? They put on there a vine with a leaf. Fruitfulness. Josephus, the historian, reports that in the, above the, the, the entrance of the second temple, the temple that Jesus would have gone in and out of, there was a huge gold statue above the door of what? a vine, a vine with leaves and grapes on it. Who knows? Maybe when Jesus leaves up a room, they walk right by that door right after he says this and see it. I don't know. But when you read verses one through four, to you and I, we need to know that this was not new imagery to them. Jesus was infusing new life into old imagery. And for you and I, this probably isn't the first time we've heard of this imagery either, right? It's beautiful. It's beautiful imagery. And if you notice in verse four, there's this mutual abiding. We remain in Jesus and he remains in us. And I love the way Augustine points out the fact that even though there's a mutual abiding in verse four, right? Jesus says, "Um, abide in me and I in you. There it is. Abide in me and I in you. So there's this mutual abiding. Augustine points out that both benefits are for you and me right? In other words, the life of the branch never flows back into the vine, ever. The life only flows one way, from the vine to me and you. And so what Augustine says is having Christ and abiding in him and Christ abiding in us, both benefits are advantageous, not to Christ, but to the disciples. Jesus is all about our fruitfulness. Even there, in verse four. And so this is the invitation of the Christian life to draw on the life of Jesus and to abide in his love, verse nine. And that right there is what makes Christianity different. You see this organic and relational dynamic here of abiding, not in tyrannical blind obedience, not in rules, abide in my rules. No, abide in my love. Notice closely, notice with me, verse four, notice, notice. Some of you are nervous. Some of you are afraid because your conscience is crushing you right now. Because we hear our whole life 
that you're saved by grace, not by works. And it's really hard to believe. And your conscience is destroying you right now. But look closely with me. Don't miss Jesus' softness and his honesty. But look at the image. Does the branch get the life of the vine because it's fruitful? Right? Be fruitful so you can abide in me. That is not what he says. Abide in me so that you will bear fruit. You see, the branch is fruitful because it gets life from the vine. Let me tell you what it looks like when we get this mixed up. Now, in this sort of uh, confluence of illustrations, some of you here are going to think I'm talking about you because you've talked to me recently, but I'm not. I promise I'm not talking about one of you, okay? I hope that you're encouraged by this because you're not alone. I talk to many of you. And this is what happens when we get the imagery mixed up, when we think that we must bear fruit before we abide. Instead of abiding, receiving the life, which inevitably will produce fruit, okay? So this is what it looks like when we get that mixed up. Someone's going to come into my office with a particular sin issue. And they're going to talk to me. It's going to be about their relationship or it's going to be about uh, sin they're hiding, sin they got caught at, a sin that they're tired of, but they're not going to come to my office. You're not going to come into my office. You're not going to meet me for coffee until things are really bad, until you're really desperate, until you've been trying for so long and you don't know what to do anymore. So you'll finally tell me some of the story, but not all of the story. And I always know that, okay? So you're telling me some of the story. And this is what is happening. You're determined you're going to change. And your first instinct is that you're going to change not by abiding in Christ. That's not what's going to happen first. You're going to go to fear and pride. And this is what fear is going to look like, okay? Fear looks like this. Man, if I don't change, I'll lose this relationship. What would life be like without this relationship? I can't live like this forever. I have to change. Or I'll be so ashamed because I meet with these guys, I meet with these gals every week and they keep asking me how it's going and I keep failing and I keep failing. And so fear will make you change for a little bit. And this is what pride looks like. I don't struggle. Not like this. Other people might. I've been a Christian for too long. I've learned too much. I work too hard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get over this. I'm going to be a good husband now. I'm going to be the best husband. I'm going to be the best father. I'm going to do better. I'm going to be the best wife. I'm going to be the best friend. I'm going to be the best daughter, the best son. I'm going to impress everyone even God, with my obedience. That's what pride looks like. And now I'm going to change the metaphor. Instead of the vine and the branches, I'll come back to that. Think about metal, right? I saw this video of, of these, uh, this metal rod and these two concrete or metal walls were pushing in on it and it slowly began to, began to bend. And the machine stopped and, and you think they, they bent the metal. And then the walls are released and the metal flies out and goes exactly back to where it was. And you see, when you use fear or pride to change you, it'll work for a while. But that bending, as soon as the relationship comes back to some equilibrium, as soon as you have hidden, you've defeated that sin to a certain amount of times that you're now comfortable with, right? It used to be too much. And now this is, I can live with this, right? This isn't too bad. Once a month, once a week. I fly off the handle at somebody, angry, screaming at them. 
or look at something I shouldn't have on the internet or lied again. It used to be every day, but now it's every week, right? As soon as you get to some equilibrium, the pressure of fear and pride is going to move and you're going to spring back or it won't. And you'll keep pressing fear and pride and fear and pride until you break. And that's what's going to happen to the metal too. You see, the only way to change metal is to do what? To heat it up. Heat it up. Put the pressure on it so that it can actually change and reshape. And some of you live your Christian life by trying to change through fear and pride. Rather than drawing on the life of the vine, you white-knuckle it. You New Year's resolution it. But as one preacher said, to draw on the life of the vine, you can't simply infer the love of God. You have to experience the love of God. When's the last time you experienced his love for you? Like he says in verse nine, abide in my love, where you are overwhelmed by his love. This is not a personality thing. We all may experience it differently because of how we're made, but godliness and the spirit of God always trumps personality. So whatever it looks like for you, when is the last time you experienced the love of God? Because if you're only inferring the love of God, you will not change. I will not change. It's when we experience him, when we're drawing life from him and spending time with him and enjoying him, then we will find that that's where life is. And and we oftentimes have these counterfeit vines because you don't decide, am I going to pull life from something or not? The question is, where are you pulling life from? What vine are you plugged into? Are you plugged into Jesus or are you plugged into something else, right? Here, some of us are plugged in to other counterfeit vines and we wonder why after a couple years of being a Christian, we haven't really changed much after that. We haven't really become much more loving. We haven't really gotten better at taking criticism. We haven't really stopped critiquing other people and tearing them down in our minds. We keep doing that. Why? Because you're pulling on counterfeit vines like success. Right? I need this. This will give me life. Uh, maybe it's you're pulling on the vine of needed, needing to be needed and helpful for other people. That's where you're going to get your life. Is if I'm being needed and if I'm adding value to this person, then, then I will find life. For some of you, you need to be unique and special. And you'll do everything to convince yourself that you're unique and special. That's going to dry up. Because over and over and over, you'll find... I'm not unique and special, at least not in the way I need to be if I'm going to pull from this vine. Some of you, you need intensity. You need things to be so intense. And if things don't go your way and quickly, you get angry. And it's other people's fault. And you're always slowing down for other people because you're drawing on the vine of execution, of intensity, of productivity. All of these vines are false. All of these vines will draw up, dry up. Now it may look good at first, right? It's like the Christmas tree. You go in the woods, you cut down a tree, you bring it into your house, you put decorations on it. It looks better than it did in the woods. But just wait three weeks, wait four weeks, wait five weeks. It's not going to look very good anymore. Why? Because you cut it from its life source and it's dying. You gave it some water, And it helped make it pretty for a while. 
those false vines that you go to, they'll work for a while. They're like that water that you put the Christmas tree in, but you are cut off from the source of life and you will shrivel and you will die and you will take people with you because sin splatters. You'll take people with you. You'll destroy churches. You'll destroy families. Maybe your family, maybe your workplace, maybe your name, fill in the blank. And so I know some of you were thinking, okay, okay, okay. How? How do I do this? How do I draw on the life of the vine? And we will get into this in weeks to come. And I will say one thing about it today. But when we go to how, I need to push you a little further. Even the question of of how can slip into, give me a list of things to do. Just tell me what to do. I get it. Like I get when we're in crisis, even now God could be pruning you. Okay, we tend to think pruning in terms of discipline in Hebrews, but in this context, Jesus isn't saying anything about discipline. That is one way he prunes us. But what he says is his word gets in you and it gets in your heart and it grabs a hold of you and you know you can never be the same because you know if you do, you're walking away. You know that if you don't repent, you know that if you don't embrace this, you know that if you don't lean in, that you're being disobedient. Okay, we all know what that feels like of the spirit of God lives in you. So some of you, he's pruning right now. And what he wants to do is get a hold of your center so that you live your entire life for him. That when you wake up in the morning, everything you do is for him. Just like everything he did was for the father. Until we do that, we're not abiding in Jesus like he says in verse four. Okay, so obviously none of us are doing that, right? I found the words of C.S. Lewis Very helpful here. This is what he says. The Christian way is different. It's harder and easier. Christ says, give me all. I don't want a little bit of your time and a little bit of your money and so much of your work. I want you. I've not come to torment your ordinary self. I've come to kill it. No half measures are any good. I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. He switches metaphors to that of dentistry. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown it or stop it. I want to have it out. Hand over the whole natural self, all the desires which you think are innocent, as well as the ones that you think are wicked, the whole outfit. I'll give you a new self instead. In fact, I will give you myself. My own will shall become yours. That's the Christian life. That's what abiding in Christ will do. It will not give you more self-discipline. There are other ways you can do that. I've read lots of really helpful books and I have more self-discipline than I've ever had. And I'm glad I do. But that's not what this is talking about. This is life pulsating from the vine, grabbing onto your heart and changing the very things you love. So abiding in Christ then is a moment by moment drawing on the life of the vine. Abiding is not a category of life that you must achieve. It's not a thing that you must go and find or build or achieve. It's a surrendering right now, moment by moment, resting in the love of God in Christ and then responding as he would have you in every situation, wherever you are. Leslie Newbegin was a great missionary to India. And he reminds us that abiding in Christ doesn't give us a life 
of mere inward resting. It actually pushes us then out to love others. And this is what he says. The Christian way, sorry, here we go. The gracious indwelling of God with his people is not an invitation to settle down and forget the rest of the world. It is a summons to mission. For the Lord who dwells with his people is the one who goes before them in the pillar of fire and the cloud. So the promise of his presence is clenched in the words, up, let us go hence. Context. In, at the, the very last line of chapter 14, right before chapter 15, Jesus says to his disciples, let us go. The enemy is upon us. That's the context. Up, let us go hence. There is mission to be fulfilled. There is a conflict to be waged with the powers of this world. There is tribulation to be endured. For Jesus, who chose and called them, did so not for themselves alone, but that they should go and bear fruit. But he does not send them out alone. He leads the way and brings them with him. Catch this. They dwell with him only as they go with him. So abiding in Christ is something we do as we are going. So the disciple following Jesus, abiding in him, we can actually be relieved of anxiety about fruit bearing because of the next and final point, which is much shorter. And that is this. We can trust in the vine dresser. That's a gardener. That's the father. There's much that we can say about this. I've said a little bit already about what he means by pruning and what's in the immediate context. But imagine a vine. When Leah and I lived in California, we moved into our, our house that we were at the whole time. And in the front yard, there were these sticks. They were planted in the ground, but they were sticks. Neither of us had done much gardening. I didn't know what they were. So I started asking some neighbors and they said, oh, those are rose bushes. And I said, those are sticks. They said, no, those are rose bushes. So I say, well, let's go to Home Depot. Let's get some fertilizer and some soil. So we buy bags of fertilized soil. I sort of dig around the plants. I pour the new soil in. And guess what happens? All of a sudden, new branches start coming. And then some green. And there's leaves and leaves and leaves. And then a rose. And I thought, we won. We did this. We got a rose. And Leah's like, there should be more than one rose. And I'm like, hey, don't push it. There's one rose on this thing. And it's pretty. Well, her grandmother is an amazing gardener. Just amazing. So she FaceTimes her grandmother and shows her and gets some instructions from her grandmother. I'm gone. I come back. And what I found were my beautiful bushes had turned back into sticks. And I thought some lunatic drove through my neighborhood and destroyed all of my rose bushes. So I walk in and I'm like, did you see what happened? And she's cooking dinner and she's like, yeah, I did that. What did you do? You killed them. No, I pruned them. No, you killed them. I saw them. You killed those things. They're bleeding, right? And I'm being so dramatic. And so what she says is, I prune them and she describes to me the pruning process. And I'm like, I've read John 15. I know how pruning works. You killed those things. And, uh, and guess what happened? No kidding. We, just a few weeks later, it starts coming back, but not so many leaves, but tons of roses. Why? Because when she pruned it, it put so much stress on that plant that it had to go back to its life source. It doesn't matter how much water I gave it, how much fertilizer. It didn't happen. It didn't become effective until those branches had to draw 
on that vine. And that's how we are. The wise gardener, like her grandmother, in this case, it's the father. The wise gardener alone knows what pruning, what watering, what feeding, what sunshine or rain, warmth or cold is needed to produce the fruit he desires in you. The disciple, you and I, will learn obedience by following Jesus in this moment-by-moment obedience to the will of the Father that Jesus engaged in. Right? One of the reasons this is so hard to trust God as the pruner is because it's so hard for us to mistrust ourselves. And in order to surrender, we have to mistrust ourselves. You leave those bushes up to me, a bad gardener, that would have lots of leaves, no fruit. But when, when the wise gardener gets in there and never wastes a stroke of the knife, ever, only to prune for your goodness, that's a beautiful thing. And I'll close with, again, C.S. Lewis from Mere Christianity. He says, imagine yourself now as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's, he's getting the drains right and he's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on, but you knew those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing over there and putting up an extra floor over here and running up a tower over there and building a courtyard here. You see, you thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he's building a palace and he intends to come and live in it himself. That's what God's doing in us. And if we are going to see the flourishing of our communities, the flourishing starts in us and we become conduits of Christ's life, bearing fruit everywhere we live, learn, work, and play. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now um, so tempted to run to effort, so tempted to run to condemnation, but you keep weaving through this passage Abide in my love, just like I did with the Father. Abide in my love. When you abide in my love, you will bear fruit. Help us hold on to which comes first, that we abide in your love. And we are grateful that we will bear fruit. We don't want to be barren vines. We want to be flourishing vines that produce fruit of character and fruit of generosity and fruit of love for our neighbor. So send us out. And as we prepare to be sent and prepare to come to your table that you've invited us to, call us now to reflection as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.